Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Go Bold. I'm your host, Jody Atariwala. So we here at Go Bold strive to bring thoughtful discussions on topics spanning all branches of the armed services, defense industry, and aerospace writ large. So if you have any topics you'd like us to explore, please reach out to us at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com and we'll do our best to accommodate. And I would like to encourage you to like, follow, and subscribe to us here at Go Bold, so that way you don't miss any of our fantastic topics. So today's episode is part of our Stories from the Cockpit series, where we get first-hand perspectives from pilots and operators. I'm thrilled to say that we have on the line today a Lieutenant Colonel with the United States Air Force. He has spent most of his operational career with the Air Force Special Operations Command, where he flew the MC-130 Combat Shadow and the CV-22 Osprey. So today's episode will focus primarily on the Combat Shadow. It's a special variant of the C-130 Hercules, which is built by Lockheed Martin. Combat Shadow aircraft fly low-level air refueling missions for special operations helicopters. They also fly clandestine and low-visibility missions for infiltration, exfiltration, and resupply of special ops forces by airdrop and by air land. Combat shadow missions are conducted primarily at night as a means to reduce the probability of visual acquisition and to reduce the intercept by threats. So with that foundation in mind, it is my great pleasure to welcome to the podcast Lieutenant Colonel Rob Marshall. Rob, it's great to have you on the line, sir. Thanks, Jody. Good to be here. Rob, thank you. I guess the best way to start out is uh, tell me what prompted you to join the U.S. Air Force. I've got a long line of family uh, in the military, dating way back into Civil War days and even Declaration of Independence uh, times. So uh, as a kid, I just grew up wanting to serve. And very early on, my, my attention was grabbed by space and aviation. Uh, I grew up in Seattle, and my dad would take me uh, monthly down to the Boeing Museum of Flight. And so if anyone that's listening to this has been there, they know that that's just a phenomenal, inspiring place for young budding uh, aviation enthusiasts and even to old aviation enthusiasts. So combine that with uh, watching Top Gun and having the Blue Angels fly overhead every summer during Seafair, and it was pretty pretty obvious to me that I wanted to be um, a pilot. That's awesome. I've I've been to the uh, the Boeing Museum as well, and I completely concur. It is a fantastic museum, and they have a ton of stuff there. But uh, anytime I have a chance to see the SR seventy one Blackbird anywhere, that just kind of makes me smile. Yeah, it's a gorgeous airplane. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, what year did you join, Rob? And where did you end up doing your training? Yeah, Jody, I started the Air Force Academy in 1997 uh, here in Colorado Springs, and I graduated in 2001 um, and elected to go right into pilot training. Um, at the time, you could get your civilian FAA license here, so I did that through a military program right after graduating. Awesome. And then went down to Columbus Air Force Base, and I showed up about oh, maybe a week before September 11, 2001. Oh, wow. So that was a really interesting start to my military career, uh, just a few months out of graduation. And, you know, our nation goes to war after September 11th. And so that made the realities of pilot training at Columbus Air Force Base uh, far more poignant. Mm -hmm. uh, but, I, but I was lucky, I will say, 
Uh, I'm proud to have been able to fly the T-37B, the Tweet, and that was quite an interesting airplane. That was a tough airplane to um, to learn in terms of um, the old gauges, right? You know, old steam gauge, essentially, um, basically nothing digital inside the inside the uh, cockpit display. So that was that was a good way to learn the old school methods of flying. Yeah, no kidding. I, I have to ask because you know it, it, that would have been such an um, such a poignant time to be training uh, with the Air Force, knowing that we were going into war. Um, did that affect you in any way in terms of your training? Like, did it sharpen your focus, or or did it, um, you know, did it resonate more with you that you know once you once you graduate and you get qualified on an actual aircraft that you very well could be going into combat? Uh, it was very clear to me that we were going to war. Uh, I remember watching the second aircraft strike the tower. I was in the dorms, in the kind of the pilot dorms, mm -hmm. and my friend had woken me up banging on my door when the first plane had hit, and I watched the second plane hit, and that's when, more than anything, I just wanted to focus on flying and become the best pilot possible because I knew within a year uh, there's a good chance we'd be in combat. Yeah. And it, rather than being, you know, scary or um, a turnoff or whatever, you, you know, mm -hmm. it wasn't a distraction. In fact, it was a huge motivation right. to kick some ass and get ready to, um, you know, strap on it and get into the fight. The sooner I could get into the fight, the better. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I would imagine that most of your colleagues would have felt the same way because you joined the Air Force knowing that that's one of the things that you could do. It's not just flying, but, you know, it's uh, uh, very real. When you join the military, you could go into combat. No question. Everybody at pilot training after September 11th was just, we were absolutely ready to graduate. We wanted to get through the system as quick as possible. In the past, people might be okay with delays in the, in the training pipeline because it gives you a little bit more of a relaxed lifestyle. Mm -hmm. But when I was going through pilot training, nobody wanted any delays because that could possibly delay your class from graduating and getting into the fight. So we were we're all, you know, on the JV team, basically, right? We're all watching. We're watching this this war start to come together, and the sooner we could get into it, the better. And every single uh, American airman I was flying with, just they just wanted to get into it as soon as possible. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Um, so it, now you're in training, and you're going through that whole process of of getting your wings. Um, tell me what that's like for for a, a listener that might be interested in joining the Air Force or any branch of the Armed Forces where you might fly, um, what is that whole process like and what guidance would you give to a, an aspiring pilot? Well, Jody, I, I think it's clear uh, that it's a complex, long, intense program. Um, so without going into too much boring detail, I will say it is very competitive. Uh, you've got a lot of type A people there that want to be the best. They want to fly and prove and be competitive that basically show that they, they're a great pilot. And there's something beautiful about aviation and, and the art, the artwork and the skill that it takes to be a pilot. And so you'll see a lot of young people in there doing their best to show that they've got the chops to, to be number one. Um, we've got a saying that they still talk about in pilot training, and it's uh, drinking from the fire hose of knowledge. Um, when you show up, you get given more information than you could possibly absorb or go through in the amount of time given to you. 
Sure. So you have to have excellent study habits on how to get through the information, retain the pertinent information, be able to regurgitate it under high stress during your daily stand-ups where in the Air Force, um, they still do it. They'll, they'll have everyone sit around the table and they'll, they'll point at somebody and basically say, you're in an airplane, you're going this speed at this altitude and you have this warning light on. What do you do? And everyone stares and looks at you. Right. <laughs> talk about, yeah, talk about an, an intense situation where your peers and your instructors are all watching you. Right. And you, you can have, you can have your checklist with you, but it's not like you can stop and look up notes. Sure. Sure. Um, and then the answer was always aviate, navigate, communicate. Uh, and I think if you ask any U.S. Air Force pilot, what are the three steps that you learn during pilot training or what would you do? do during emergencies yeah. and it's aviate meaning keep flying the airplane don't put it into the ground right navigate and you know make sure that you're pointed in the right direction and you know where you are and then then you can worry about communicating to air traffic control or a wingman or whatever right uh, but bottom line it's intense but boy is it fun when you get to go out and start doing barrel rolls and next thing you know you're doing full loops uh you're doing low high speed low levels uh, and it's kind of a dream come true for uh, young people that want to be pilots. That's awesome. I'm smiling as I hear it. Um, so talk to me now about graduating. What was that like for you personally? And then uh, I imagine that once you graduate, you ha- you have a list of your preferred options of where you want to go in the Air Force. Yeah, that's correct. You get a dream sheet is what it's called. And you get you put it in before graduation. Okay. Um, there's two phases of graduation in Air Force pilot. Uh, training pipeline. Your first night is uh, kind of a select night, and that's where you get to choose which direction in the Air Force aviation spectrum you want to be. So everyone goes through, and then uh, you know, you're, you're, you've been competing against all your classmates. The first person in the class gets to pick, do you want to go fighter-bomber track, which is the T-38? Mm-hmm. Do you want to go the uh, kind of heavier transport track, which would be the T-1? Or do you want to go into something a little bit more niche, which would be helos, uh, flying them out of Fort Rucker, the Huey out of Fort Rucker, or do you want to go into props? At the time, the prop was an option for us, and that was flying the T-44, the King Air, out of uh, Corpus Christi, Texas with the Navy. So that's the big decision, Jody, is, you know, what do you want to be? Most people go in knowing what they want. I wanted to be a fighter pilot. I mean, I still thinking of the Blue Angels and the Thunderbirds and Top Gun and just the idea of being really competitive. And um, what was funny is right before our selection, uh, of which way we wanted to go, I had earned the right to, you know, I'd earned a high enough score to get a T-38 and go fighter. But I had spent enough time with uh, C-130 pilots specifically during, during my low level introduction and I love their calm attitude to flying down low and train and kind of train following. And um, I remember one guy, you'll get a kick out of this. I, I kind of asked the guy, hey, you know, what's a good way to tell how low you should be? Like, what does a 300 foot low level look versus a 500? And I remember him telling me, if you can count or see the dots on the cow, on the side of a cow, you know, you're at just about the right height. <laughs> and. And that's the type of, of attitude and old pilotage that I loved about the low level, the people that did um, tactical airdrop and airlift, like the C-130 crews. Yeah. So I kind of fell in love with that attitude of 
flying instead of looking at my instruments all the time um, or being hyper competitive. I like the idea of buzzing along the countryside or the mountains down low enough to look at the treetops and really be down near the dirt. And so I actually turned down my fighter opportunity and and chose to go on the C-130 path. You know, that is super cool because it speaks to so much about the Air Force in the sense that there is that variety. There's that wide swath of things that you could do. And, you know, we haven't even, uh, because it's not really pertinent to this discussion, but we haven't even talked about the space side or the ballistic missile defense side. Like, I mean, there's so much to the Air Force. Or the cyber side. Or the cyber, yeah, or the cyber side. And so, yeah, what an amazing opportunity and and a part of your life but i bet you there's people that are going how could you have turned down fighters but clearly you knew what you wanted to do yeah yeah absolutely you're right so okay you chose i, I guess in that context now it's a heavy lifter so or multi-engine I chose to go, yeah i chose to go into the multi-engine prop gotcha uh, pipeline which at the time really only offered you the ability to fly the C-130, and then there was there are some aircraft. You know, we do fly some smaller VIP prop transport at the time. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, in special operations, you know, there's several non-standard aircraft mm-hmm. um, out there. But at the time, for us, it was just open source was, hey, you can, this, will, this will get you into the C-130 pipeline and potentially maybe flying for an embassy in a, in a smaller prop. So... Then you go through training with the Navy down in Corpus Christi, and it was an outstanding program because they have the ability in that aircraft, in their modified King Airs, they call it the God Box. Okay. And they could actually, on their armrest, without you really even seeing it, they could flip different switches that would cause failures or errors in your navigation system. Wow. So maybe your uh, ADF needle freezes or maybe you know your VOR dies. Mm-hmm. while you're on an approach. Mm-hmm. And they could, instead of just simulating it and telling you or telling you verbally, they could secretly do it and see if you notice the off flag or if you notice it freezing. It was a great program. I think by the time I finished it, my final, my check ride was probably more intense than it should have been. I remember we had an engine failed, and when they failed the engines, they would shut off the engine in the aircraft. Wow. So you lose an engine, and next thing you know, you're, he also says you've got a fire or something, and you shut. And now you've got to wear a face mask, and you got to put your oxygen mask on, and you need to pump down the the emergency landing gear. You know, you got to use like the emergency landing gear handle to get the gear down. Mm-hmm. It it was fantastic. So um, multiple emergencies, uh, some really difficult navigation uh, challenges, and, and I felt really ready after that program. That's awesome. And how? Uh, obviously, you know, if they shut down an engine on you, I would imagine that they're quite confident that you have the aptitude to to be able to to bring that back up or or to go through what you need to. Because obviously, one of the main things about training is is safety as well. So I think that's kind of an interesting. Uh, it's interesting that they would actually do that because today, so much of that would be done in simulators versus actually in the cockpit. Yeah, I agree. I, the simulator is great. Uh, it's a, such a such an amazing tool to practice significant emergencies that you that would be too dangerous to practice in the air. But that is one reason I like this program. Right. Um, was uh, you know pulling an engine back and shutting it down and showing you that yes, you indeed you can restart it. It's going to be okay if you restart it. And getting that confidence with the actual mechanical equipment was huge. Yeah. Um, and 
And then the way it works with this is you're now in the you're in the C one thirty pipeline basically mm-hmm. and there's another selection night and they rank all the Air Force officers separate from the Navy officers. Okay. And then you put in your dream sheet again and you say, I'd like to fly C one thirties from these country you know, from excuse me, these bases or these types. And at the time I with you know, with nine eleven just kicking off, I really wanted to go into the special operations community. So I put in a request for that, and the feedback came that you need to be in the you know the top half of your class, and we're not sure if we'll have any AFSOC aircraft because at the time, if if you think about it, back in 2001, special ops was, was still quite small, right? Much smaller right. than it is now. Sure. Um, and I put it in, and another guy put in for it, and we were lucky. They came back to us and said, "Okay, one of you can have an AC-130, the gunship." Mm-hmm. Out of Robert Field, mm-hmm. and one of you can have an MC-130 out of England. Ah. And we talked about it, and I got lucky and was able to get the MC-130 out of England because I really wanted to live overseas. Sweet. Um, and that became kind of like the the start of my 13 years of flying for special ops, which was just fantastic. That's awesome. And so you chose MC-130 out of England, and that's at uh, RAF Mildenhall. Uh, but but before you go there, obviously you have to train for that role. So how does that work? Do you go to Hurlbert and train and then do Mildenhall or? So good question. Hurlbert is our headquarters for Air Force Special Ops Command. Mm-hmm. There's some training that gets done there. Okay. However, for the MC-130 and the Osprey, mm-hmm. uh, that takes place in Kirtland Air Force Base in New Mexico. Oh. Um, and just so everyone knows, you know, the C-130 is the primary aircraft, right? That's what we're talking about. When you add the M prefix onto it, that means it's a multi-role. Right. And it's essentially a generally an identifier for special operations. Right. So the MC-130, and then this was a PAPA model, which is an older model. Ah. And the MC-130 PAPA was known as the Combat Shadow, and that's what I selected. And its primary mission is infiltration, exfiltration of special operations, airdrop and resupply in denied areas. And then also the ability to air refuel special operations and rescue helicopters. Uh, What's the primary in the Air Force at the time being the MH-53 Pavlo was the main drinker of that gas. But we would also do Army special ops. So without belaboring this, you know, training is not all that exciting. But you go out to Kirtland and you get indoctrinated into the special operations community. Mm -hmm. um, Learn what you need to learn. And... Once you're ready to be a, a good co-pilot, um, you head out to England. And, and here's a funny one that some people get a kick out of. I remember when I got out to England and I was a brand new pilot. I think I maybe had just put on first lieutenant. Mm-hmm. And my director of operations, who's, who's generally the, the head pilot, and he's kind of the number two in the squadron, he basically said, look, just follow my lead. I know there's a lot to learn. You know, This is very serious work. But until I get to know you better, I just expect you to be a voice-actuated meat servo. <laughs> you, you get that? So a voice-actuated meat servo, meaning if I tell you gear up, I, you better raise the gear. If I tell you gear down, your hand should reach over and lower the gear. Don't do anything unless I'm basically telling you to do it. And I thought right, that was right. I thought that was kind of funny. I was like a little bit like, hey, you know, come on, I'm a qualified co-pilot now. <laughs> when I joined AFSOC, I was really lucky to be there with with a great, great history of um, outstanding pilots that had really worked hard to get into the special ops community. Mm-hmm. And they used to not accept young people. Hmm. You used to have to go and do an entire operational tour or two. And then 
apply to be an AFSOC pilot, a special ops pilot. And when I say AFSOC, that's Air Force Special Operations Command. Right. Um, they'd only recently started taking them straight out of pilot training. Interesting. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, that, that was the beginning, uh, beginning of flying that for four years. And we, we had some pretty cool stories. You know, I got some good stories for you from that. And uh, I'll just let you kind of ask, ask what questions you want to go into. Well, I guess well, the first one I have to ask is, is those seasoned pilots – uh, that perhaps had done one or two tours before joining AVSOC, and then now they're in that command. How do you think they saw somebody coming out of flight school and going straight into special ops? Yeah, I think there's pros and cons to it. Sure. Uh, one of the pros is that they saw you coming in fresh. You didn't have bad habits that you may have learned in a non-special operations unit. Mm -hmm. You come in and you're immediately inculcated, indoctrinated into the special ops community. And that is the way you live and you breathe and you operate. And so it was great. They got essentially a, a fresh you know, specimen, right? right? And they got a stamp and basically mold that person into the young special operator they wanted. Right. So... Uh, I think they, they appreciated that. We were also really young, really excited. We didn't have uh, much in the way of uh, hurt feelings when we were told what to do and what not to do. Sure. Um, we sure. just wanted to learn and, and be good at it. Yeah. Uh, one of the downsides of that, though, is now you've got a flood of very young people that may not necessarily be a great asset in the cockpit when the going gets tough. You know, there's a seasoning and a power curve right. that, that isn't met when you come in raw. Whereas in the past, they would bring in people that were already top of their game, top instructors, top evaluators. Uh, and, you know, and that's a problem when you when you rapidly expand a force like a special operations. Yeah, yeah. So it was a very interesting time for you guys because, like you said, at that time it was not a big community. Yeah. It was very interesting because now, now you're in, in combat and you got Afghanistan and, you know, Iraq's starting to boil up. Yeah. Um, and they're really calling heavily upon these units that are small. And it was just really cool to go in there, though. I got to tell you, I was just so impressed by all the people that when I joined, I joined the 67th Special Operations Squadron in England. And there were just so many impressive pilots and navigators and flight engineers and loadmasters and radio operators, and the intel team and the maintenance team and the operational sports team. I mean, these people had been some of the first folks to go into bases around Afghanistan bases around Iraq and the amount of experience they have was just so cool to be around all these true snake eaters that had been living in tents out on the sand, um, flying the MC-130, which I consider the Jeep of the sky. That is so cool. Okay, so let's just kick into it. You know, you're now in England. What was it like to live there and to operate and train daily for your role as an MC-130 pilot? And then talk me about your first operational mission, because I'd love to kind of get your sense of how that, uh, how you felt knowing that it was your first operational mission in Air Force Special Forces. Yeah, it, it's a pretty, it's a pretty fast uh, ramp up to get you ready to go. They none of these units ever have enough pilots, right? So they they really want you to be ready as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. um, but generally, that starts out by flying around the local England uh, Eastern countryside. And it's pretty cool because there's all of the World War II uh, bases. Um, well, you know, they're, they're still scattered about. Some of them are still operational. So there's a couple airfields that we would use um, every night of the week. And we would practice lots and lots of night vision, uh, blacked out landings. 
And, and what's unique about that in the M230 is you don't have, there's no ILS, there's no TAC-IN or VOR that helps you set up for like an approach. Right. Um, we call it a self-contained, it's a self-contained approach, an SCA. Okay. And the M230, this version of it, the PAPA has two navigators in it. Wow. And, but it doesn't have a sophisticated radar. It's got a pretty standard radar. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have train following radar. Um, so it's really important that the navigators and the pilot build a really strong bond because what the navigators will do is they'll find a strip of runway or even, I mean, shoot, our unit would even practice landing on the sand when the tide went out. And let's say you can't see the runway from a distance and the weather is bad. The, the mission of the special ops community would be to fly through bad weather, build your own self-contained ILS essentially based on GPS and radar and a heavy-duty navigation study, and then fly yourself down to minimums and hopefully be able to see the runway and then land. And that runway may have no lights on it or it may have night vision you know, night vision compatible lights. Mm-hmm. And then plan it, plan it there in the first few hundred feet and come to our come to a fast halt. And we just we would repetitively do that over and over again. We would do airdrops. Um, one thing I really liked about the special ops community with the airdrop and with the uh, laying on the blackout runways mm-hmm. was their lack of uh, reliance on GPS. Oh, right. um, we would do, and that's unique, right? And that's yeah. really important to think about. Um, most people are extremely reliant on GPS these days. Right. But let's say we would do an airdrop, whether it was people, heavy equipment, containerized delivery, where you're dropping a bunch of boxes out or even a leaflet delivery. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, we would, it would be expected that the co-pilot would generate maps and do most of the map work, okay. um, but also be able to take a pre-printed, you know, basically there was two ways to do it. You could either use a computer mm-hmm. and build like a map and it would show you all of your time and your distance and what altitude you should be at. But what I really appreciated, and it felt like a haze at the time, but now I see just the intelligence behind it. The special ops community said, hey, you're a new co-pilot. We want you to hand draw these maps. So here's a blank map of the local area. You need to measure it. You need to tell us how long it's going to take you to get between these points at certain speeds. We want you to tell us how much fuel. Um, when we get to every waypoint, we want you to know exactly what's around it and be able to visually identify it, not just using GPS. Wow. And the best part was when we would do run-ins from our initial point into the, to the drop zone, mm-hmm. the, flight, you know, the flight lead might ask a co-pilot, at five miles out, what should you be seeing out your right window to know that you're on you're on track? I mean, you don't get to hear that much in, in our 21st century. Nope. Asking a co-pilot, you know, and my answer to them would be, I should be able to see um, a lake with a building on it, and that should be approximately three quarters of a mile off the right side of the aircraft. Hmm. And if at four miles or five miles out, I don't see that, then then there's a chance that maybe our navigate our digital navigation system could mm-hmm. have been set up wrong. Right. So right. that was what was so cool. We'd practice it over and over again, airdrops, blacked out night vision landings, and really getting good at working, uh, we call it clock the map to ground, mm-hmm. and looking at basically don't rely on your GPS, rely on your how much time it should take, where are you on the map, what what is outside, then look at the the internal GPS system and see if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I think if we jump ahead to today's environment, I think that skill set 
is so important because so many people now are talking about GPS denied environments. And so it was reassuring to me to hear that the Air Force Special Operations community would train like you did. And I I would be surprised if they aren't continuing to train that way because, you know, you can't rely on, on you can't necessarily yeah. rely on GPS. No, you can't. You, you can never rely on it, right? right like right. it is not, it is reliable when it's working. Right. But if you're entire, if you're in the military and your entire hope is that the, you know, your entire plan is based around GPS working perfectly, mm-hmm. then you've really set yourself up for failure. Exactly. Um, yeah. And in the special ops community, these are no fail missions. Right. And so, by God, you better be doing radar updates off of the, they can actually paint a mountaintop with the radar. Mm-hmm. and confirm that that's the mountaintop that they think it is. And they can actually update their internal navigation system based on where that radar is, You know what's its distance from the aircraft, what's its azimuth, then they can actually update it. That's not a, an accurate way to update your INS, mm-hmm. but if your GPS is gone and maybe there's not VORs or TACANs out there, well, then maybe it is a great way. Right. So that was, right. that was really cool. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Hey friends, I'd like to take a quick second to thank our sponsor, Cubic Mission and Performance Solutions. In this episode, you're hearing about the constant training that Air Force Special Operations pilots do day in and day out. Cubic continues to lead the industry as the world's foremost provider of fourth and fifth generation air combat training systems, leveraging nearly half a century of experience and innovation. We'd like to thank Cubic for being a teammate of the Go Bold podcast, and we encourage you to learn more about them at cubic.com. Now back to our show. So talk to me about your first mission. What was that like? And what was your, what was your mind thinking? I guess you're obviously laser focused on the mission, but. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I felt like I was ready. Um, The special ops community did a lot more than just flying. They put us through advanced special um, survival and evasion resistance escape mm-hmm. air training mm-hmm. and got a shoot and just really kind of got us into that air commando mentality. Mm-hmm. And we deployed out to support the, the war in Iraq. And that must have been around, I'm thinking, 2003, okay. 2004-ish. And we actually spent a month of time in Kuwait um, with this deployment. Hmm. And I, it just, it was just what I expected it to be. Uh, sleep most of the day, fly most of the night, lots of um, airdrops. We did leaflet drops over the Syrian border, which little did we know what a hotspot that would end up becoming. Right. Um, we, you know, supported anything that Special Ops Command um, or the Joint Special Ops Command wanted done in terms of moving cargo, moving people. Um, supporting direct assault or direct action missions. So um, the helicopters would, you know, would pick up um, special warfare teams from the Navy or from the Army, mm-hmm. and they would then go into, you know, capture, kill uh, terrorists, bomb makers, people of um, high value targets. Mm-hmm. And you know, we would either go in and give them fuel as necessary, or maybe we even have a quick reaction force that we could move from place to, you know, from base to base if necessary. And then even a few times we would carry um, very advanced surgical teams hmm. that if necessary, we could land right near where the battle, you know, where, where someone maybe had been shot. And these people are, 
And these are the these are the top special operator door kickers. And if one of them takes a bullet, instead of flying them back to a, a hospital, we would take the hospital to them. And the C-130 could then be used as a mobile surgical unit. And it was really impressive, uh, the, the team of surgeons and the magical, the magical work they could do in the back of the aircraft. That is fantastic. Like, I mean, you know, who would have thought that you would take the, the hospital to them? But it just speaks to more capability that's inherent within the, within the special yeah. ops community. I remember, I remember once we had a team on board and we were flying. No, no, actually, I started to get an Osprey. You know what? I started to think of a CV-22 story of carrying a surgical team and getting shot at. <laughs> uh, but we'll have to save that for another another chat. Absolutely. Um, so, well, speaking of, you know, did you have any notable uh, in-flight incidents in the MC-130? Uh, I'd be very keen to kind of know hmm. what, if anything stands out. You know, out. it's funny what the question it's funny what becomes notable and not notable. Sure. I think when you're brand new, you're like, oh my gosh, anything's notable. Right, right. But we were just so lucky to, that that airplane could just take a beating. I mean, from the hitting birds to having the nose, you know, doing such hard landings on assault. Mm-hmm. We call it an assault landing when you have a much short, uh, much shorter runway than normal. Right. And, you know, I've had the nose cone, I mean, the prop cone tear off of the aircraft and, you know, bounce off the prop and go into the fuselage and the plane just keeps on trucking. Jeez. You don't even know what happened until you get back and recognize, hey, the, the <laughs> cone off the prop, which is pretty big on the 130s, it's gone. Yeah. There's dings all along the side. And you're like, yeah, I thought I heard something strange. <laughs> um, blown out tires, um, failed air refueling system. Um, yeah, we, I was lucky, I think, in my time in the 130, if I remember right, I don't think we ever took any hostile fire. Okay. Um, that just meant our tactics were going really well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I found far more, you know, hostile fire incidents when I was in the CV-22, since that's the one that's actually going into the villages. Right. Um, we were just going from major, you know, major base to minor base. Okay. Um, but when I think about it, really nothing significant. You know, we, we had to shut down an engine numerous times, mm-hmm. but when you have four fans of freedom out there, Losing one engine is not a big deal. Um, oh, I love that. It's a really calm, collective, cool group of people. Yeah. I love that phrase, for France of freedom. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So your first combat deployment was in Iraq, and then you've deployed uh, after that in the MC-130 to a number of other uh, combat zones. Well, when I was there, I actually left fairly quickly. I was selected for the CB-22 Osprey program, which was just starting up. They were grabbing the initial group of people okay. to fly it. Okay. So I did one OIF, Operation Iraqi Freedom, mm-hmm. um, deployment. and But I did go down to Africa with the MC-130 several times. And while that wasn't a declared combat zone, there were still hostiles down there ah, okay. um, that, that made many threats against us and uh, we're, we're definitely a threatening force and that's where like Al-Qaeda had a presence and, and still has a presence in North Africa mm-hmm. and the Pan-Sahel Sub-Saharan Africa area mm-hmm. uh, but those are some of my favorite deployments because um, we would work with the local forces from Mali, Mauritania, Senegal, Niger uh, we could fly all over to some of the most remote places I've ever imagined um, whether we were airdropping people or just doing low-level uh, work with them. Uh, but those I wouldn't consider deployments mm-hmm. in terms of that's not what the normal person would call a deployment sure. because they're not to Iraq or Afghanistan. However, 
you know, we'd be gone for 30 days at a time living in um, pretty basic remote settings, anything from tents to running out like remote hotels uh, or motels, you know, in in countries like Mali. So that's what was cool about special ops is we would do trips that were more than just the standard, hey, I rotated to Iraq or Afghanistan. Right. In special operations, you may find yourself living in Central America supporting counter-narcotics work for a month. Then you might find yourself a month later living in Africa supporting counter-terrorism work. And then you might find yourself for three weeks living up in Norway supporting uh, NATO special operations training. That is the beauty of special ops is a variety. Was there any particular uh, country within Africa that stands out to you? And then, oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think Mali. Uh, we would go down and do Operation Flintlock, which has been going on for many years. Okay. And uh, we would go down and support um, you know, many of these, these really poor countries that, at the time, they hadn't been overrun yet by uh, Islamic fundamentalist mm-hmm. terrorist organizations. Mm-hmm. They knew that it could be an issue. They knew their borders were enormous and deserty and porous. Right. Uh, but they wanted to do their best. So I really meant a lot to me when we could go down there and show them how to, you know, better defend themselves. When our army rangers or our pararescue men would show them small team tactics, when our medical teams would show them uh, more advanced life care or life saving uh, steps. Um, and you know, here we are. We're living. We're living on the outskirts of these really poor kind of wild, wild west cities or towns or villages. And you're driving, you're driving on dirt roads, wondering if someone, you know, it's not at nine 11 happened. Is someone going to hit you with a RPG or hold up your, you know, your bus. And sometimes people are carrying nine mils under their seats and you're not sure what the threat situation was going to be like. But for the most part, I found the flying fantastic. You could get really low because they had, very lax um, aviation kind of flight airspace management. Sure. Uh, I think one of my favorite things I saw happen uh, was um, on the back of a MH-53, and we were doing a demonstration. I was just riding along. Mm-hmm. We were doing a demonstration for some of the top uh, officials in the Malian military, and we were doing gun runs, and, and the 50 cal is firing, and the minigun is firing. And this gentleman was sitting next to me. I could tell he looked bored because he didn't have night vision on, so he couldn't see anything. Okay. So, Jody, I, I, you know, I just took off my helmet, put my night vision up, and I tapped him on the shoulder, and it was hard for him to see because we're in the back of a an H-53 that's really turning aggressively and firing. And, sure. Um, but I, I pointed at my helmet and the night vision, and, and he kind of looked at me like, oh, like, you're going to let me try this? Mm-hmm. And this guy had to have been in his 50s. I mean, he was a pretty senior military officer. Okay. So I reach over and I put my helmet on him. Yeah. And then when I click down the night vision, I can see the green light you know, glow turn on on his eyes. Yeah. And the guy jumped in his seat. He reached back and grabbed on tight onto the side of the seat. And it, I mean, it must have been like voodoo magic to them. I don't think he'd ever seen <laughs> night vision goggles on and now he's seen the tracers and the weapon firing and he can see everybody inside the aircraft which is blacked out yeah that was one of the highlights for me um i mean this is kind of that is in a nutshell what these um joint combined exercise training missions where we go into other countries and we teach them how to defend themselves Mm -hmm. and how to use more advanced technology just putting the night vision goggles on somebody like that talk about changing their entire 
concept of night warfare. It was it was awesome, and he just couldn't stop laughing and smiling. It was, it was awesome. I'm smiling as I hear it, and I tell you, it it also speaks to the fact that how used to modern technology and, and, you know, different aids that we've gotten used to in modern warfare, I guess, modern aviation, but that's not the case for many places around the world. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we, we are a very fortunate group of people to be flying for the best military in the world with the best technology. Um, and every year I think the edge gets a little bit more narrow as, um, NDGs are proliferated around the world and, more advanced surface-to-air missiles are spread and, you know, cyber weapons are spread and, and our margin of excellence and our margin of superiority gets narrowed. But I think the one thing we always retain is the um, the margin of professionalism and excellence. Mm-hmm. Um, even if we're fighting with the exact same equipment as our adversary, I think the training, the really intense flight training and officer training and training for anybody in the military in, in America at least you know, from America, from my viewpoint as an American, mm-hmm. I think that's what gives us the edge. Yep. Yeah, I would I would dare say that's the case for for most. Um, well, certainly for the United States, but most uh, NATO nations, I think would uh, would probably agree that you know it's a professional armed services. It's not just. Um, uh, well, I guess if you know if we were to think way back to the draft, you know, it's like people who didn't really um, they weren't there by choice. They were there because they had to be there. But um, for modern militaries, people choose to join and that makes it a professional endeavor. Yeah, I agree. Um, hey, so I was looking through some notes and I was thinking of just some other fun things we could talk about. Yeah, please. Um, that I just wanted to really hit on the N 30 Absolutely. Um, so, you know, with the N 30 we always had a rivalry and that was with the N 30 uh, H, the Talon 2. Okay. And... They were also stationed at Mildenhall near the next to us. And it was a, it was a healthy rivalry. We're both, we both had very similar missions. What made the difference was they have a train following radar and a jamming system, whereas we were in an older model C-130 and we didn't have train following radar. We just had, you know, the pilot's eyeballs and an older radar. And yet we were still supposed to be doing the same world level missions. Okay. So I think one of the things I was most proud of was how proficient we became at nighttime, low level, using night vision goggles and really reading the terrain, working with our navigators and flying very low, um, you know, 300 feet in, in very big mountains, uh, even down to much lower than 100 feet over the water and doing that without a radar that tells you when to pull up and, you know, when to turn. Um, it was also the scariest part, I think, of the mission. Uh, I don't think a lot of people recognize that with the MC-130 world, um, what type of pilotage and navigation skills were together in that aircraft. You couldn't do one without the other. Um, I remember, I think one of the scariest times I had was we were flying night vision low levels in Albania. Um, President Bush was down at the Olympics after 9-11, okay. down in Greece, and we were, we as a special operations group was, you know, kind of training in the country next door, just in, basically just in case we need to roll in sure. and react to any type of post-9-11 terrorist threat. Sure. And that's what's kind of cool if people don't realize the special operations communities, they're all over the world, and they are there waiting and ready to respond in a moment's notice. Right. Um, but there I was, I think, um, a pretty senior 
co-pilot and we're doing some of the scariest low levels I've ever done where you take off at sea level and before you know it, you're flying down valleys with 13,000 foot peaks around you. Wow. And I think the two things that were the scariest to me was once we were down in a real low valley and I remember we needed to start climbing and we were a little heavy on weight. We still had an airdrop to do. Mm-hmm. And I just remember thinking, you know, this C-130, we've got it, the torque. You can over-torque the engines on a C-130 very easily, okay. uh, especially in cold weather. Sure. And if you did that, then the punishment was often to go out and help maintenance do all of the inspections and repairs. <laughs> right. You've messed up the aircraft. Right. Um, but I remember, Jody, uh, that we were, you know, were climbing up. You realize you're at max power. There's no more power. And you see these giant, you know, snow-capped or rocky mountain peaks in front of you. You're just hoping, my God, I hope I have the, the, the smash and the horsepower and the airspeed to get over these mountains. And the navigators were really good at reminding you when you needed to climb. Um, and so that was pretty scary. And I think, I think the, the biggest pucker factor I ever had in the MC-130 happened when we were doing some uh, nighttime air refueling. Mm-hmm. So we had gone up and gotten gas from a KC-135. Okay. And that, this is what's kind of cool about the MC-130 is you can take gas. It's one of the few C-130s that can receive gas from a strategic tanker. Right. Then you drop back down to where the helicopters are, slow way down, drop your flaps, get dirty, and get right on the edge of the stall. I and mean, you're literally two or three knots at times above your stall point. Wow. Just so you can help the one, the, the MH-53s get on the hose and stay on because they need their gas. So we do a lot of formation work in the MC-130. Right. And I mean, you talk about wanting wanting to do something exciting, take two C-130s, black them out, turn, you know, basically get all the lights off except for a little bit of night vision kind of coloring. Mm -hmm. Now go fly through the mountains in formation, visual formation. Um, we did that. And then we went out, we, we, we came out over the water and I remember we were heavy and we, the lead slowed down faster than I thought they were supposed to. Oh, geez. Okay. So now you're in this giant C-130, you're in, you're in a tight formation, yeah. and suddenly the lead aircraft is gone to idle. And then if you've ever flown a prop aircraft, yeah. when you go to idle, it really creates a lot of drag. Right, yeah. And next thing you know, we're closing on them rapidly. Hmm. And I'm the co-pilot, I'm flying. And I remember turning the wing to get away from them a little bit and shock the power. Okay. Now we've lost sight of them. And you don't know if you're going to, now you don't see them anymore. And what I should have done is just bre- broken off and moved away. Right. Okay. But as a young co-pilot with poor judgment, I decided I would try to save the rejoin or save the um, formation. Mm-hmm. And I just remember, I swear I could hear the, the props from the other airplane go by. I, I know that's unrealistic. But that's what it felt like. Yeah. I remember everybody was dead quiet and afraid that we were going to run into their wing. Holy jeez. And we got it done. We were able to refuel the, the payload helicopters. And when we returned to base, everybody else left the aircraft. And, and like 10 minutes later, we're still sitting in the cockpit. The pilot's strapped in. I'm strapped in. And the flight engineer, who was a chief master sergeant, is strapped in. That's our highest rank in the enlisted force or the Air Force. Mm-hmm. And I just remember him, uh, Chief Kingsbury, reaching over and grabbing us both on our shoulders because he sits in the middle mm-hmm. of the fighting chair, sits in the middle. And he just said, well, boys, that was the closest I've ever come to, um, you know, a midair collision. Let's, uh, I'm glad it didn't happen. Let's make sure we don't ever do that again. 
And that was the word of wisdom from our most senior aviator. And he unstrapped and then we unstrapped and, and quietly went home. But that was, that was pretty scary. Night vision, heavy weight in on a no moon. There was no moon out. So there was no illumination. Um, so it's really hard to look outside. Um, but that's the type of stuff we would do regularly. And, and that aircraft is just amazing. Wow. I tell you what, like, I mean, uh, my, my palms are moist just thinking about it. Like I can't imagine what it felt like for you to actually be sitting there in the cockpit doing it. But I certainly remember in whatever simulator time I've had flying a C-130 that it's control. It, it, you put a control input in and then you take it out. And, um, I found that really, really hard to learn, but I can't imagine what it'd be like to be actually doing formation stuff up close next to another guy and something like that happening. Holy smokes, man. We hope you are enjoying this episode of the Go Bold podcast. Please take a moment to like and subscribe so you don't miss any of our fabulous guests and topics. Now, back to our show. One thing that's great though about prop aircraft, yeah, and you don't get it with any with any jet or turbofan, is the power of the prop, right? right? Um, some of your listeners may not recognize it, but you get instant, you get instant lift and instant thrust when you're flying a prop-driven aircraft. Same with the Osprey, same with the C-130s. Mm-hmm. Um, they're always running at a hundred percent speed, essentially. Okay. Um, and then all you're doing is changing the pitch on the blade. And so suddenly with the tiniest change of your throttle, you're not waiting for the, um, turbine section, the compressor section to speed up. It's already at full speed. So all you have to do is just make a little bump. And next thing you know, you've got wind over your wing. And so it was great for flying, uh, formation because you had instant, uh, throttle inputs the hard part about flying formation, though, was it's such a large aircraft. It's really hard to slow down and and a little bit harder to, you know, to turn. But it was a joy to fly props because they were so responsive to the tiniest inputs or even the most significant inputs. Um, if you go from zero to max, it's not like a jet where you now have to wait for the engines to spool up. You've, you've got it. You instantly have the power you need. And that's badass for flying formation or doing really delicate um, landings or air refuelings. That is badass. That is awesome, man. Okay, if I were to ask you, what are the strengths and the weaknesses of the MC-130? What would they be? Um, well, I think, you know, when I'm talking about the older Papa version, because sure. I haven't thrown the new J's, and I believe the Papas are, are getting retired, if not if not retired by now. Okay. But I, I call them the Jeep of the Sky. It, it doesn't rely upon electrical digital inputs. Mm. Um, the strength of that aircraft was if, you know, an EMP, an electro- electromagnetic pulse goes off, mm-hmm. it might fry more modern aircraft, you know, software, hardware, their computers, and make some of them fall out of the sky. And like a fly-by-wire aircraft may fall out of the sky. Right. And what was so cool about these older Special Ops 130s is they – were mechanically governed. I mean, the engines used flywheels and weights and springs to make sure that the throttle was, you know, input was right. And I think one of the worst things that was digital on there that could cause problems was the um, autopilot. And if you wanted to take the autopilot out, if it was malfunctioning, you could literally take it out of the system, like physically disconnect it. Wow. And now you're just flying a mechanical aircraft. There's right. beauty 
there's still beauty, Jody, in flying mechanical aircraft. I you agree. know it's you connected to the engines by throttle linkages. You know it's you connected to the flaps and the ailerons and the, and the rudder and the elevator through mechanical linkages. Yeah. Um, and it makes you one with the aircraft. How, how 9,000, you know, some, some computer AI is not a voting number. <laughs> whereas when I flew the Osprey or the C-17, yep. I knew that I was just a voting member in the cockpit and the, the computer had the final say for the most part. Right. Right. Um, so that's a, that's a pro. Mm-hmm. Another pro was, you know, Again, the Jeep of the Sky mentality, we carried Leatherman uh, on our boots, like, and we carried duct tape. And the flight engineers could get out at a remote airfield in, in literally Timbuktu, Mali. And if an engine wasn't starting right or there was a leak or there was a problem, they could use their Leatherman duct tape and wire to fix almost anything. Um, and in modern aircraft, that's just not quite the case. So right. I'd say those are the pros. Okay. The cons of the MC-130, Papa, the Papa version, um, would probably be that it was a pretty heavy aircraft, and um, with its mission of airdrop and air refueling, Mm -hmm. that really limited um, how much power you had to do low level. So there was many times where I felt like I was a little underpowered deep in the mountains, and that's a big pucker factor. Right. Um, And it wasn't really, on, on the flip side to my strength, it wasn't geared for the 21st century electronic environment. So it's, it didn't really, ha- it didn't have radar jamming uh, or electronic warfare suite. It had pretty basic uh, flare and chaff systems. Hmm. Um, and you couldn't get good Intel. It didn't have real time Intel updates on the screens. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one of its downsides was it was more of a, of a 1980s, 1990s aircraft, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and its pros and cons were, hey, that makes it simple and it breaks less. But the con is you may not get the Intel updates that everybody else has seen. You may not have synthetic aperture radar. Um, you don't have train-following radar. You've got a really basic FLIR. Um, but, boy, for airdrop, um, resupply behind enemy lines, halos, landing on the sand, um, air refueling aircraft, you know, special ops helicopters uh, just above you know, red lines, like that, that's pretty cool stuff. And that, it could do it really well. That is really cool stuff. Um, I, you kind of jog my memory by saying that you would be one of the few C-130s that would be able to take on fuel from a strategic tanker. Um, what's that like uh, in the sense that you climb, you get fuel, but is it hose and drogue or is it a, a boom receptacle that you guys have? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. I'm glad you brought it up. Uh, the MC-130s and the AC-130s, the two special operations um, variants, they we cut a, they call it URC. I can't even remember what it means anymore. It's a universal refueling system. They cut a hole in the skin of the aircraft just above the cockpit, and they stuck in a, a refueling system. Okay. And I remember the first time I refueled, I could really smell. The, the smell of jet fuel was really strong. And they're like, yeah, you know, I mean, these things are add-ons. They're not perfect. Right. So uh, what was, uh, I'll explain it in terms of um, getting gas during our mission in Iraq. Okay. Uh, We were support of a special operations direct action mission. And the Chinook helicopters were already on the ground. They'd already dropped off their team of Navy SEALs. And they were needing to then get gas to get ready for the second half of the mission. And it was a really bad, cloudy day. 
and the KC-135 that we were working with was luckily a special operations qualified KC-135, which meant they could go into worse weather and lower altitude. Okay. So the C-130, you know, that thing doesn't like to be up high above um, 20,000 feet and above. It doesn't operate that well, um, especially when you're trying to get gas. Whereas the C-17, you know, they operate great at high altitude. Sure. Yeah. So in this case, you want the KC-135 to come down as low as possible, Mm. hopefully 10,000 feet or even lower because the C-130 to take enough gas, um, we're using all the power we have to stay on the boom. So the KC-135 slow down, they lower their flaps, they get uncomfortably slow. We have to go pretty damn fast. And so it is the the traditional um, boom, boom refueling. And I remember in this case, we were asking them to come lower and lower. We couldn't get high enough due to our weight and the density altitude. Mm-hmm. And they went lower than they wanted to. And there was also some small arms fire and some um, enemy activity in the area. And they didn't, they don't have any defensive systems to really help them from that. Right. But I remember they came down and we got closer and closer and we still couldn't find them. But um, our little, our radar and our attack end was telling us that we're close to them. Keep going. Okay. And I remember just seeing a glow in the clouds, Jody. Okay. Literally just a glow in the clouds. And I'm like, oh my God, are we going to try to go get gas from them? And the aircraft commander is like, yeah, let's do this thing. Uh, this is a critical mission. Yeah. So we pushed in and pushed in right to the absolute limit. And we could see our lights clear enough. We really couldn't see the aircraft, but we could clearly make out the refueling lights. And that was enough for us to go in and get gas. Um, and then we barely made out the aircraft as we got closer. So wow. talk about pucker factor with air refueling. No kidding. Um, but then we would take that gas and sometimes you would actually fall off the boom is what we called it. Meaning, um, we would take on so much fuel that we didn't have the power to even keep up with the KC-135 anymore. Wow. And in that case, we would ask them to toboggan where they lower their nose and they start going down, like descending. Okay. And that gives us enough, um, potential energy to keep up with them. Uh, in this case, they couldn't toboggan because they were already at their hard deck. Right. So we got right. as much gas as we could handle and dropped off and then immediately went down, put the drogues out and, and air refueled the two Chinooks, um, that, that needed the gas. So Holy that was pretty shit. exciting stuff. No kidding. That is awesome. And it seems that is a consistent theme of a problem of the strat tanker needs to get slow enough to for you guys to go fast enough to get it. And then when you're refueling helicopters, you got to get slow enough and the helicopters have to get going fast enough. You got it. Yeah. And that's what makes the C-130 so awesome. Um, and that's why, you know, it would be great if the CV-22 or a helicopter could refuel from a strat tanker. But, um, you know, right now, like that's just starting to become more and more of a reality. But the C-130 is the perfect bridge for that issue. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. What an, what an amazing aircraft. And so yeah. I also have to ask you before you go, I have to ask, um, between you guys, so you were the combat shadow and then the guys that had the yep. train following radar at Mildenhall, your sister squadron or your sister aircraft, that was the, that was the combat talent too. That was the combat talent too. Okay. So and the and it was E or H it was MC-130E is the combat talent one. Okay. Those are all retired. Okay. I believe the MC-130Ps have been retired, but the MC-130Hs still exist. Right, right. So I the Talon 2. Right. So between the Combat Shadow and the Combat Talon 2, 
you know, you obviously went Combat Shadow, but were you envious of the Combat uh, Talon 2 guys at all? Um, at first, when I when I got into the program, I was envious because they had a newer aircraft with digital displays. It had um, electronic warfare system. It could do high-speed airdrop. It could, and it had trained following, which just seemed so cool to me. Mm-hmm. But over time, I recognized that their aircraft was a little bit more, it was a little bit more fickle in terms of it would break easier. Mm-hmm. Um, also, they were so reliant upon that train falling radar, whereas I, I got lucky that I got to learn how to fly down low and dirty using my eyes and listening to my navigators. Like, they had a sing song. They would literally have to sing in, a, in, in kind of a rhythm how to get up and down these mountain valleys or how to fly that self-contained approach. So I think that my crew resource skills and my low-level skills probably improved by being a Papa pilot. Um, and my low speed flying improved certainly by being a Papa pilot since you're always on the cusp of stalling when you're air refueling the helicopters. So did they have a Gucci airplane? Yeah. But I kind of liked being down and dirty with the old version. And in the end, I ended up getting to become the customer uh, that got refueled by the Talon 2s because eventually the Talon 2s became the air refueling arm for the CV-22. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> so it was a nice flip. It was a nice, you know, they used to give us a hard time for being gas passers, as they called it. Right. So it was pretty sweet to then become an Osprey pilot and then and then watch them having to give us gas. Because once the Osprey came online, Assoc decided to make the Talon 2 an air refueler as well. Right. It's true stick and rudder flying, right? That's what I get from your experience with the Papa. Yeah. Yeah, stick and rudder, exactly what it was. It was beautiful, beautiful. So your MC-130 got a little bit truncated because you got selected for CV-22. Yeah, yeah, the CV-22 is just such an amazing, amazing aircraft. I was really lucky, and I'll tell you what made the difference. Yeah. I I kept saying I wanted to fly helicopters. I realized I liked the 130. Mm -hmm. I love the mission, but I want to get even more into the dirt. I want to get my hands dirtier and be working more directly with the shooters, you know, with what our pararescue and with our combat controllers, with the Navy SEALs, with the Rangers. And I, I saw that the, the Air Force Rotary World, at the time, the MH-53, that was it. And I kept talking to them about a job. And after three years of working with them, they said, hey, why don't you come? You'd be a great uh, kind of initial member of the CV-22 program. So, yeah, I got it cut short. I was just going to go to a pilot or to... I just finished aircraft commander school for the C-130, mm-hmm. and instead of moving up, you know, higher into the echelon of the MC-130 world, I put my prop days behind me. And well, actually, I traded my C-130 props for the uh, tilt rotor turbo prop of the Osprey. Beautiful, beautiful. Okay, so that's going to be our next chat, and I'm sure our listeners will be eager to hear that one. So, if it's okay with you, Rob, we'll we'll save that one for the next time. And uh, yeah, yeah, and- let's save it for another time. Hey, Rob, thank you very much for taking your time with yeah, you me bet, today. This was, this was awesome. I'm looking forward to our next chat. Yeah, that'd be great. I'll, about- we'll, we'll be in touch. That, my friends, was Lieutenant Colonel Rob Marshall, who's with the U.S. Air Force and flew with the Air Force Special Operations Command flying the MC-130 Combat Shadow. Thank you, everyone. If you have any questions or any comment that you would like to ask or perhaps would like uh, Colonel Marshall to answer, uh, please write to us and we'll do our best to accommodate 
the views and opinions expressed in this presentation are solely those of the participants. This podcast is copyright and all rights are reserved. No portion may be reproduced or used in any manner without the express written permission of the publisher who can be reached at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com. The music on this podcast is Parasail by Silent Partner.